We're back with the Concrete Conservative and Victorious Vidal. This is Mac on the Rock. And you've got our caller. Why don't you introduce our caller? Hi, our caller is Caleb Kruckenberg. He's a litig... Right? Caleb is a litigation attorney with the New Civil Liberties Alliance in Washington, D.C. They're a conservative and libertarian public interest law firm, and he's got some interesting uh, cases that he's been working on. So, Caleb, why don't you tell us about it? Uh, Well, thanks uh, for having me, first of all. Um, And, uh, you know, the New Civil Liberties Alliance is kind of a unique organization because what we really focus on is administrative law. And we try to push back against the administrative state and what we see as administrative overreach. Well, wait, 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 wait. But wait a minute. Let's get this straight. (laughs) Administrative law is unconstitutional, right? Uh, Yes, it is. And, yeah, because, um, you know, concrete conservatives, no, we, no, have Philip it, Hamburger, who <laughs> we have to make it very clear. Philip Hamburger, right. who was professor at Chicago and Columbia, founded that group, and that's the name of his book. Constitution, uh, administrative law is unconstitutional, or maybe it's unlawful. Well, and, and yes, and that's, well, that's the question he poses. Is administrative law unlawful? Right. And the answer is yes, it yes. is. That's right. We that, agree. That's the short answer. Yep. Um, it, it, right. And so we push back. And, and you know, what I, I mean by that is, you know, there are a lot of administrative agencies that go around writing rules and pretend like their rules are actual laws that people have to follow. And even though they might conflict with the statutes that Congress has actually written, and then they go around and, and prosecute people for violating these rules, even though they're not really laws in the first place. Yep. Now, where what would be the most uh, significant case of that offense in terms of trade, or uh, what would you know, maybe uh, uh, give us an example? Let our audience know. Would it be a, a rule in, as it pertains to reporting requirements for a manufacturing firm or? Retailing tr- international trade. What what actually would be the a really obvious offense that our audience could grasp? So we see them all over the map. Um, I mean, this, this comes from you know financial regulations to you know the kind of regulations for how you market products. So I mean, you know, if you turn the back of a cereal box over, there's uh, nutrition facts and and all sorts of things that the FDA is required a cereal manufacturer to do. But it's also small businesses, it's farmers, it's small business owners, um, and it, it's even things like firearms. And and actually, I think you know probably a good example, as any, um, of what we're talking about is you know recently the ATF issued a regulation banning bump stock devices for. Uh, which are devices that go onto a firearm, and they said that these are legal. It's a crime to possess them uh, going forward. And it's just an example of, you know, agencies. There's so many federal agencies that they have rules that govern just about any aspect of your life. Okay, so they just say it's so, and it becomes so without any type well, of... Well, what, what administrative agencies have what's called rulemaking authority... Right. Under the Administrative Procedures Act. And is that different than promulgating a law once it's passed? Well, it's the, the law is supposed to be Congress. The Constitution says the legislative power shall be in the Congress. So anytime we promulgate a law by yeah, bureaucrats, it's illegal. Yeah, it's not a law. It's you know, statutes are what legislatures do 
uh, administrators uh, promulgate regulations, rules. Right. You know how much I despise right. that. So it, 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 there's a good I argument was affected to be personally made by a school, a school law that over was over delegation, over delegation. Not to mention they promulgated like a decade after the a- law was passed. Absolutely. So what right. what Caleb is saying is that the all these regulations are really sub uh, they're un, they're unconstitutional, they're unlawful because they, they don't have the power to do that. Well, at the same time, the elected official doesn't have the brains to write the law the themselves. The elected official is a coward who's trying to shirk his responsibility. Absolutely. And instead of do- doing his legislative work, is spending time raising money. That's where we are. And in then Congress. some somebody who's doing an internship in his office is right, writing the right. law. Right. Right. Oh, not not even that. It's not even in his office. It's in a regulatory agency. Caleb, right. are are we far from the and truth then- here? What's that, I'm sorry? Are, are we, we close? Are we close are to we the right? truth here? Are we right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, what you talked about with Congress is supposed to pass the law. Right. And, you know, it, anymore what happens is exactly what you're saying. Congress will write a law. They won't put any details in because they expect administrative agencies to come in later and pass the real rules. And so what happens is you, lawmakers who are democratically elected and are supposed to be accountable to their constituents – um, you know, they're shirking their duties. They, they're not even writing the laws anymore because they expect administrative agencies to do it. But the administrative agencies, they're not elected by anybody. Right. These are just career bureaucrats who who write all the laws that you have to follow. Yeah, we, and, I, I, I love to, uh, to, to, to mention what, what I know to be true in a, in a personal matter. And then I'll let you talk, but I really want to spat out on the promulgation <laughs> yeah. of... The Florida Parent Empowerment Law was passed by Lawton Childs in 1996. So that's a statute passed by the legislature. Yeah, for what they call the Parent Trigger Law. Okay, and it's the only direct ballot parent trigger law in all of the United States. You would think that they would promulgate it, but no. He just wanted to say he was doing that so that he could take it out of Jeb Bush's platform since he had beat him. Well, he ends up dying in office, and Jeb Bush does nothing about a law that was originally his platform, right? So it sat there just on a very powerful law that could really reinvent the whole educational system if it would spread to the other 49 states, and nothing became of it. And it becomes it comes to my attention in 2010. Look how much time passes by. Charlie Clarist, of all people, promulgates it to allow the voting guidelines to make it very, very unfair and un-American. He separates the ballots in the parent trigger election, intra-school vote in between, you know, uh, parents in a school campus who want to take back their school and manage it themselves as a guardianship board, teachers and parents vote separate ballots. So not only do you have to fire this trigger letter as a parent, you have to win two elections. 50% at least has to show up. Well, the teachers don't want to. And you've got to subject your child to abuse during this one-week election, but about a two-month campaign between the time that the board reads your trigger letter and controls the ballot process as far as the mailing of the ballot and the explanation of what they're voting for. And there's no, there's nothing in the propagation problem. There's no, there's not a single rule that lets the parents stand up in the cafeteria and explain why they fired a trigger letter. In my case, I was the first person to use it in Florida history. So I wasn't even allowed to talk as PTA president because I wanted to elevate the ground game. So I actually ran to just do this and they wouldn't let me talk. They wouldn't let me hand out uh, flyers on, on the sidewalk. 
My principal actually went to the police department to try to get me arrested. Obviously, the police department said, you know, he has the right to, he's the PTA president, he has the right to be on campus, for Christ's sake. And I'm also a parent. And then on top of that, there's no place for a public forum. And all this was promulgated 10 years after the law was yep. passed. And now I'm spending five years trying to amend it, all because of the promulgation process that you guys have told me is illegal. <laughs> Well, it's so if, sad if it's because your kids. Legis- you're, if it's done by a regulatory agency instead of a legislature. No freedom of speech, no freedom of assembly, right. and total abuse of your children if you happen to be yep. the parent proponent. But, you know, um, Caleb, this goes back when I was in college. My BA paper in 1978 was on the, uh, the, the, the case of Schechter versus the United States, where the Supreme Court held that the National Recovery Administration was unconstitutional, and one of the case, one of the reasons was interstate commerce. The other reason was over delegation of powers. That was in 1935. I don't think any court has struck down any statute by from Congress because of over delegation of powers. In fact, uh, Sar, um, not Sarbanes Oxley, but Dodd Frank had 240. 234 cases in the statute where it said the secretary shall. So they were expressly de- uh, delegating to the regulators. You're, you're absolutely right. And and sadly, the Schechter case was the last time right. that the court has ever struck down a delegation. Right. Um, but, but what we're seeing now is delegation that you couldn't even imagine, you know, back in the 1930s, where we're having... Um, Congress delegate either directly by saying, you know, an agency shall pass rules or indirectly by just leaving in gaps in a statute. Now the government is saying that that means that prosecutorial agencies have been delegated the power to write criminal laws right. that that same agency then goes around and prosecutes. Yeah, yeah. and that, that's the other point that I would make, is that in the 1700s, Charles Montesquieu, a French writer, came up with this book called The Spirit of the Laws, where he popularized the idea of the separation of powers. And the founding fathers took up this idea, and that's why they created you know, three branches of government, legislative, executive, and judicial. But if you look at the regulatory agencies, not only are they an unconstitutional fourth branch, but within them, they embody all three branches. You know, for example, the SEC uh, promulgates regulations for what you're going to do. Then they enforce it. They, they go to, you know, they, they, they catch you if Elon Musk is out of, out of line with the regulations. And then they bring him not before an Article Three court. They bring him between, before one of their administrative law judges, who is not an Article Three judge. He's an employee of the SEC. So the SEC and other regulatory agencies are writing the law, enforcing it, and adjudicating it. It's a total right. sham. Am I well, wrong? And when you lose in front of the SEC, you appeal to the SEC. Right. Um, to, to the whole commission. And, and, and do they have, have arrest no power as well? Federal court. Do they have arrest they powers as well? They can ask the marshal to get you, yes. Oh, they can request another agency. The marshal. Well, the marshal. Well, no, wait. But, you know, the IRS has 5,000 firearms and 1,000 rounds of ammunition. A lot of these regulatory agencies... Caleb, I don't know if you, you're, you're you're familiar with this, but a lot of these regulatory agencies actually have arsenals in their in their uh, stores. Right, and you know, also, I, I don't want to diminish either the kind of 
power that an agency like the SEC has, even though they're it's not you know a criminal agency, but they have the power to issue fines that can be multiple millions of right. dollars, and they can also ban people from the industry right. for life, which is something they do all the time. Right. And yeah, so that is police it, power. <laughs> absolutely. It is. And in a lot of ways, you know, there are probably people out there who would rather go to prison for a, a definite period of time than to be told, you're never allowed to work as an investment advisor ever again. And also you owe us $10 million. Well, that's their profession. If they can't be an investment right. advisor, that takes away their livelihood. Yeah. Meanwhile, yeah. you have someone who can be sitting at the very top of the food chain and running a Ponzi scheme. As uh, as yep. what's his name? Uh, the greatest Madoff, and they Madoff. didn't catch him. Yeah, and right. he was and he was right. wasn't he the head of the exchange? No, no, no. He had Early his in own his career. Business. He was an investment advisor. No, and but was he was a, the head of the exchange at no, one time. No, no. But he there was, was Madoff was, ever there, the, an officer of the exchange? I believe he was. I believe he was the head of the stock exchange about twenty years before they busted him. No, 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 no. no. I'm going to Google it now. But, go gonna... and Google it. But there was a, an accountant, a private sector accountant, who twice warned the SEC about Madoff, and they blew him off, or they, they did a study and they couldn't catch him. That's that's the way it goes. But Caleb, why don't you tell us about uh, what you guys are doing with bump stocks? Sure. In uh, this case, I think is a really good example of what I'm talking about. Okay. Um, so. The, by law, the statute that Congress wrote, machine guns are, for most purposes, unlawful to possess. You can have vintage machine guns, but you know people can't own machine guns under federal law. Mm-hmm. And if they are caught with a machine gun, it's a felony. Um, but bump stocks are these devices that go over a, a, an existing semi-automatic firearm, and they allow it to shoot more rapidly. And I think we all kind of know about them because of the Las Vegas massacre in 2017. And what happened after that shooting is, you know, a lot of the agencies got together and they, or a lot of people in government got together and said, we need to do something about this. We need to make sure bump stocks are illegal. Um, But the ATF, which regulates these devices, has said for years that bump stocks are not prohibited items. They're not machine guns. um, Because all they do is they allow someone to shoot more quickly but it doesn't change the fact that it's not a machine gun because a machine gun is something you, you pull the trigger and it keeps firing repeatedly. And a bump stock just doesn't do that. Right. Oh, he was, uh, by the way, Bainoff was a non-executive chairman of NASDAQ. Oh, come on. <laughs> That's what it says on WikiLeaks, non-executive WikiLeaks, chairman. WikiLeaks, you believe. Okay, all right, what all right, all right. Okay. <laughs> and, and so uh, what happened is, you know, because of all the political pressure, the ATF, finally said um, in December of last year that going forward, bump stocks are now going to be machine guns. And Mm. anyone who's caught with a bump stock um, is going to be a felon. And if you own a bump stock that you legally purchased with the ATF's prior approval, you have to surrender it by March 26th of this year, or we will prosecute you and send you to prison. Um, But the way they did that is they said, you know, we are going to rewrite the law that Congress wrote to try to get to these devices because we've been saying for years that they're not illegal. And that's just not the way lawmaking works. And so um, NCLA filed a lawsuit in Utah on behalf of a, a person who owns a bump stock that he bought legally. And actually when he bought it, it came with a letter from the ATF 
saying that it was legal to possess the well, item. So are you are you saying that they're not following the Administrative Procedures Act? Well, that's one of the problems. But you know, more fundamentally, they're just not following the Constitution okay. because you know the ATF is taking the position that they get to rewrite the law. They, yep. Congress wrote a statute and they don't agree with it, and so the ATF is just changing the words. Mm. So I mean, it's what, really what, that simple. What would be the final uh, resolution? It seems like this is a long, arduous road to recovery. You can't. I mean, what is it you can do? Uh, they have to win take enough? back the regulation and annul it. Right. And, and so what NCLA has done is we filed a request for a preliminary injunction, and we're just asking the court to stop the the rule from going into effect because it, it you know it goes into effect on March 26th, and we're we're asking them to stop it while we can sort out the legal arguments. But, I mean, at the end of the day, we hope the court will strike down the whole regulation. And, you know, it's not because we we have a position on bump stocks or we think that everyone should have one. You know, that's not really the issue. It's just that the ATF doesn't get to make this decision. Right. So, so do you believe that your organization, after they get done with this case, will start uh, going case by case? Or is this, gonna, is this just too mammoth? How do we rid ourselves from this you know, bureaucratic rulemaking. I mean, how can well, we get politicians to actually LA, write laws with the rules already, <laughs> vote on the law? Or not and write the, the laws, or not write anything, not legislate. Right. And, you know, our, our goal um, as an organization is we engage in impact litigation. And so, you know, we picked this case because we thought it was a, a particularly extreme example of what the government is doing. And we're hoping that, you know, with this case we can establish good precedent. You know, we, we want to have a good re- result for our client, but we also want to have, you know, important decisions that can help other people and can reaffirm that agencies can't act like this. And if they try to act like this, then they're going to lose in court because it's illegal. Well, so you think that maybe your case would actually be a precedent setting sure. uh, outside of uh, firearms? Maybe. We're hoping so. Yeah. And you know, one of the really unique aspects of this case is, you know, this is a case where there are real consequences, and there, are, you know, the consequence is prison, where the ATF is saying that they can write a criminal law and send someone to prison, um, even though Congress said that what they're doing is legal, you know, and, and that's a really extreme position that the government is taking. Yeah, so, I mean, a lot of people with bump stocks probably feel like they're grandfathered in, right? Well, and, and what we're really worried about is, I'm sure there, you know, the ATF has estimated there are about 500,000 of these that were legally sold in the United States. I'm very concerned that all 500,000 of these people don't have any idea that come March 26th they're going to be illegal to own. And I'm very concerned that in the future someone might have one that they purchased legally. They didn't understand or they, they never were told that it's and in a riot, they defend their business it. with it. <laughs> and then they're going to be prosecuted. Yeah. And I'm very concerned about that. Yeah, that could be an issue. Now, what would you do about the cases where um, there was nothing in the law that allowed government to have collected bargaining, yet Kennedy, Nixon, and Carter each... Executive orders. Oh, so the orders that allowed the biggest damage to be done to the federal government, which is allowing federal employees to unionize. Those were all rules. Uh, that's the one that people Those need. Those are executive orders, yeah. I mean, th- that stuff has to be repealed, for Christ's sake. Uh, that way we can shut down the government, and there's not such a big deal about hiring these people again. We can just say goodbye. 
See ya. Cut 25% of the federal government just in one budget impasse, and the stock market will take off. And the deficit will be reduced simply by reducing the size of government right there, draconian. What what could become of that? Could you... Excessive executive order. What do you... Right. What? I mean, how do you feel about that? You think that's a go or that's a no-go? Well, what we really care about, you know, we don't take a lot of policy positions, right? And so we don't have, you know, you we're need not a client for that. concerned about the policy, but we're concerned about the, the practice. And executive orders are another example of, you know, that's the executive agency who's trying to take power that's not theirs. And that's it's a really concerning issue. Right. So, in other words, this this latest uh, act by the president for the emergency order is based on a rule that was given to him by Congress, and I thought it was an actually an act that Congress gave uh, previous presidents. Yeah, the, the executive, uh, the emergency declaration was pursuant to a statute. That so that's Congress, not, that doesn't apply in this case. It, well, I mean, you can argue that the statute was unconstitutional because it was an over-delegation. But he, the president is, I think, definitely acting within the scope of what Congress authorized mandated. him to do. Absolutely. Yes. Author- okay. Authorized him, not mandated. Oh, I don't author- know what, what you think about that, uh, Caleb. Well, one concern that we have, and you know, we don't have a position on the specific executive order, right. the specific um, emergency declaration, but one concern that we always have is a doctrine of deference. Mm-hmm. And that's something that courts apply when they're um, reviewing the actions of an executive agency, whether it's the president or whether it's an administrative agency. And, you know, we're, I, I think NCLA is always a little apprehensive when courts are told by the law to, you know, really take a hands-off approach and to say, you know, we're not going to review what the executive agency is doing. We're not going to review their motives or, we're, you know, we're, we're just going to sort of let them go and do what they're going to do. Because right. we're always concerned that that is consolidating too much power into one branch. Well, but I think you guys have challenged uh, Chevron uh, and uh, other deference at both the federal and state levels, right? Well, explain That's deference right. to the audience. Yeah. Well, a, lot, a lot of people don't understand okay. the legal term of... Why don't you go ahead, Caleb? Yeah, well, you no, said what? you gave a, a word... Deference. Yeah, deference. Sure. What does it actually mean to the for the public to understand? So what deference means is... You know, when you have a statute, it says what it says. And generally, courts are asked to say, what what does the statute mean? That's the court's job. But deference is this concept that's unique to administrative law that says, if an agency tells a court what they think it means, then the court is supposed to agree with the agency's view, unless it's completely unreasonable. And so... What happens is this, this doctrine that's just a, a something that courts made up to, I guess, make their lives easier, just basically what happens is that courts now, they take the agency's word for everything. And so if an administrative agency says the law means something, even if it's ridiculous and, and not really what the statute says, the court will accept it because they defer to the agency's yeah. view. Yeah, one point that I made earlier is that it's totally ridiculous for a constitutionally chartered third branch of the federal government, the the federal courts, 
to defer to an unconstitutional fourth branch of administrative regulatory agencies. That's right. And, and it's, it's, it's also the judges are taking, you know, they're not following their constitutional duty. Right. Because, you know, the judiciary is supposed to tell what the law is, and they're not supposed to take their marching orders from an administrative agency. Do you see a change in that? With the, what's that? Do you see a change with the new court? Kavanaugh might be more aggressive? I, I, I do. And one thing that is, is very promising is the court granted review in a case um, called Kaiser versus Wilkie. And that is a case that deals with one aspect of the deference doctrine. And it's, it's sometimes called our deference or mm-hmm. Seminole Rock deference. Um, but it's a view, it's this legal doctrine that the court has come up with that says that even in litigation, even when, you know, the agency is one of the parties in the lawsuit, if the agency says in the lawsuit the law means one thing, then the court is supposed to accept that. Um, and, you know, that, that's pretty, pretty outrageous that, so, that a court is supposed to take its marching orders from one of the people who's litigating a case in front of it. Um, and it's very promising that the court has decided to review that, that, those prior decisions. And, you know, it's very promising that the court might overrule those decisions. Okay, that's great. So you think, uh, are you guys involved in that, uh, challenging the hour uh, deference? We are. uh, The New Civil Liberties Alliance uh, filed an amicus brief. Great. Arguing that our deference is unconstitutional and should be overruled. Okay. And, you know, what's also really exciting about that is that even the government has has sort of walked back their original argument. And okay. they've, they've taken a position now that, you know, those prior cases need to at least be refined, mm. which I, I think is pretty profound acceptance of the problem. Good, good. Okay, but refined to the benefit of the citizen or to the government? No, no, yeah. no. I think that the, no, the, to there the needs to be more judicial citizen. review. I think even the government thinks that they've gone too far. Right. So that's good. That's a good sign. Uh, so you think it'll be safe for me to go and buy a bump stock? Nope. <laughs> I, I, well, if you do, you should give me a call. First. All right. No, I I only shoot I shoot a shotgun, so I would never put a bump stock on my shotgun. Uh, uh, what a lot of people have a problem with, and it's simply for lack of thin slicing their 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 thinking, is people don't really want to acknowledge the fact that it's the country's already <laughs> leaning towards mass riots, and since we have relative peace since the Vietnam War, people don't can't really fathom mass rioting occurring again. Well, guess what? If you own a large business that happens to take corner to corner on a city commercial city block, you're going to need a bump stock to protect you, your you, property. You mean the Ace Hardware store in Key Biscayne? Uh, yeah. Yep. Um, I, I, of course, I was joking, but there, there, there are places where, you know, you do need a rapid fire, a, you know, a pr- protection of your property. Imagine if you have a 500,000 square foot facility and you're surrounded by rioters who are they're hitting out your your lighting system, yeah. and they'll take it. Yeah, they'll take you down. And and God forbid you actually have to operate because right. there's a lot of distribution facilities that are 24 um, seven. Mm-hmm. I remember my father was in the produce business, and man, our doors were open. Uh, 17, 18, 20 doors were open at three or four in the morning in the roughest neighborhood of Miami Dade. Uh, and it, when the when the McDuffie riots broke out. Man, we only had pistols, you know. We were sitting in the middle of hellfire, and guess what? We had to be open, or else this town would not, you know, would not eat. 
and we were all open. Everybody had 20 doors, and man, that place was spooky. There was burnt tires coming into our windows through our uh, loading docks. Um, in our case, we had onions, uh, and half of our facility had onions at a time. Therefore, we had huge fans that actually drew, drew the smoke into our facilities oh, because wow. we have fans on. So you can imagine it would suck yep. in some of these burnt tire smoke. And there was a moments, yep. moments at time that I wish we had bump stocks. So there may bump be a stocks. time for where you huh? need bump stocks. And, uh, imagine you're in the dead of night. Your doors are open. You can't protect yourself. Yep. You're busy with your hands tied. You know, you got a lot of... You've got a lot of merchandise in your hand that, that, that weighs 50, 80, 100 pounds. you got forklifts going, noise. Man, if you don't have people standing there outside uh, with machine gun fire, just keeping the, yep. keeping the rioters away, you can't operate I prefer operate a shotgun them. myself. But well, there's a gentleman in L.A. during the, the L.A. riots. He, right. They, uh, the shotguns were very effective. And he, he took down a whole neighborhood, and he kept his property from being burned down. Yep. Okay. So uh, the people need to understand that. Hey, it sounds ludicrous. I have a machine gun. Okay, so the law says you can't. Well, what's the next alternative a bump to protect up, yourself? Yeah, yeah okay. and during a riot. All right. Now, let me ask you, Caleb. You're also involved in some litigation down here in Coral Gables. Why don't you tell us about that? Sure. Um, so I'm involved in a lawsuit in Coral Gables, and um, the NCLA filed a lawsuit on behalf of a citizen in Coral Gables for um, a challenge to a system of automated automated license plate reading cameras. Uh-huh. I love that case. It's a beautiful case. Continue. I'm happy that this case yeah, is we, finally... We had, we had the plaintiff on our radio station last right. week. Yeah. And so, you know, the short version is that the city of Coral Gables has this system of cameras, um, basically every major intersection in the city, and they, they record every license plate. They take a picture of every license plate that goes in camera range. And they store all the pictures in a computer system, and then they uh, store it for a period of three years. So they have, anytime you drive by one of these intersections, they take a picture, they, they know where you are um, and what time it is, and then they aggregate all the data together, and they can figure out basically everywhere you've been in the city anytime in the last three years. And if you've got a suspended license, they can pull you over right then and there, right? Well, that's right, they could. And, but, you know, even if you haven't done anything wrong, even if you've followed all the rules, you've, you've never even had a traffic ticket, you know, they have a file on you, and they can look up your license number, and they can say, well, you know, we know you were here at this point, you know, at this intersection on a Tuesday at 6 o'clock in the evening two years ago. And then, you know, you were a mile away, you know, five minutes later or something. And, you know, they can basically follow you around even if you didn't do anything wrong. Um, and what's kind of interesting from our perspective, too, is that this is really a product of administrative law because there, is a, a, there are a couple of Florida law, law enforcement agencies, um, the Department of Law Enforcement and the Department of State, that issued guidance on how cities can use automatic license plate readers, and, and these agencies told cities that there's no problem whatsoever with them keeping this data for three years. They can share it with police. They can sell it to private people. They can basically do whatever they want to with it. And they Why have, is that any different than Facebook doing the same thing? I don't get it. What's the difference? Right. Well, Facebook is a private sector, but... Well, and that's... That's really the, the most concerning part about this, is this is collected by the police. Right, you know, right so they have more rights the, than we do. 
And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, we're very concerned about what the city is doing with this data. I mean, we know they're sharing it with law enforcement. We don't know who else they're sharing it with. And, you know, we don't really see the point of this. So it's and, a pri- I, so the issue is based on privacy or is it based it is. on uh, excessive, uh, excessive force or excessive, I don't know what the proper privacy, word would be. Yeah. So it's a privacy so it's, issue. It's a little bit of both. I mean, they're, they're sort of at the base. There is a major privacy issue. Um, there's a Fourth Amendment issue, and there's also a, a Florida right to privacy in the Florida State Constitution. Um, but there's also an administrative law concern because, you know, before the, the administrative agencies got involved, the city of Coral Gables was keeping this information for a relatively short period of time. It, it was 30 days. And then the administrative agencies got involved, and they said, no, you, you guys can keep it for three years. And the city took that as an order that they had to keep it for mm. three years. <laughs> and so, you know, suddenly what we think is still unconstitutional and invasive to keep it for 30 days, somehow, you know, th- this grew to three-year period. Now, are they using this to solve crimes? Not that we can see. Oh, my I mean, God. You know, we've looked and we've asked, what crimes have you solved because of the system? And, you know, they haven't been able to point to anything. Really well, they won't, admit, they won't admit that they pull a person over who's wanted. They're not going to admit to that because... Well, uh, you know, the only thing that they've admitted to, the only thing that they've bragged about is they, they pulled someone over and they gave them a ticket for an expired registration sticker. Oh, right. Um, but other than that, the city hasn't been able to point to any concrete success. Well, if you've got to suspend the license for not paying a violation or miss a court date... Man, that's a arrestable offense. So how come they won't admit to that? That's gotta have happened. Well, I would think that they would. They'd like to tell us if if it was successful. But I, you know, I I have my suspicions that it's it's not successful. And instead, what they're doing is they're just collecting data. They're just spying on their citizens. And it, you well, there's I, another issue I that there's another issue about the red light uh, cameras that I've always found really odd when your car runs a red light. There's no proof that you're driving the car and the car didn't run the could red have light. Been stolen you did by somebody, right? No, you could have given it to your yeah. daughter, or your son, a, mm-hmm. a, a business partner, your ex-wife has your car for a while. Mm-hmm. Who knows? But why is it that they can ticket the car and not the driver in those cases? Does that have anything to do with your case, or th- that issue doesn't come up at all? Well, it's a little bit of a different issue, um, but I will say, you know, I've seen these license plate reading camera pictures, and so these are different than red light cameras because they're these are just mattered over the highway. They're oh, okay, so they're different devices entirely. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, but but I will say from these pictures, you know, you can get a lot of detail, and my client likes to drive around with his dogs in his, in his car, and I've seen the pictures. And you can see my client sitting next to the dogs, and it's pretty clear who it is, and he's you know where he's driving. And you know probably the best way I can explain why it's such an invasion is you know just imagine if you went out on the street and drove around and had a police officer just decide to follow you everywhere you went, just right behind you for no reason. Um, you know that's pretty invasive. And then think about if. Every time you left your house for the next three years, you had a police officer following you. And, you know, that's basically what we're talking about. Yeah, it's very, very, very uncomfortable and very un-American. And yet he doesn't, it doesn't make you safer because they don't use it to fight crime. Exactly. 
So in other words, it's just invasion of privacy and intimidation and police state. <laughs> it's a little police state here in South Florida. It is. And, you know, that's that's really the way the city is justified, is they said, well, you know, if you're not doing anything wrong, then right. you shouldn't have a problem with that. Yeah, and that, that's, that's know, not that's good enough. Real, no. That's the backward way to view government. You know, government isn't supposed to be there just, you know, to, to follow you around and make sure you're not doing anything wrong. You know, you, we have a right to privacy, and government shouldn't just be able to invade that for no reason. Yeah. Government is, as Democrats say, government is just another way of doing things together. <laughs> no way. Yeah, that's pretty dangerous. Well, we appreciate so, your well, help with that. Now, is it what stage of litigation are you all in? Your motion has just been uh, filed or? or... So we've, we filed a lawsuit. Um, we filed it in the fall. Um, and the city has filed a motion to dismiss, which we will be, which we have opposed now. And so... <laughs> We're still in the early stages of the litigation, but, you know, the city, very unsurprisingly, you know, they've taken the view that, well, you know, you just don't have any right to privacy in, in wherever you go in public. Um, and, you know, that's not a correct, that's, it's not a correct argument, but it's also just not a correct view of the law. And so we're certainly confident that the court will agree with us and, and recognize it. Now, is the client asking for monetary damages or just... Uh... No. You know, we're just asking for a declaratory judgment, and we just want the city to stop this. And we got involved because we think it's important. And, you know, again, this is this is a precedent-setting case because these kind of cameras, they're used all over the country. And it's, you know, it's really scary the way cities are using these cameras, and, you know, Coral Gable's not the only one. Oh, we uh, uh, I'll give you an idea. It might help your case for some reason. Um, we live in a little enclave here in Key Biscayne called Mashta Island. And our Mashta Island Association, after a home invasion uh, with the people sleeping in the home, uh, we were take, very taken aback by that. And, and there was a consensus reached to pay for these cameras. And we have a little bridge that goes to our enclave. So as we leave the enclave, everybody's tags are being read. And one of the residents told me, I didn't pay a ticket, and I got pulled over by the time I was at the 7-Eleven, mm -hmm. which is down the street from the Enclave, you know, because we're, our island is only one square mile. And he was really taken aback by that because he travels a lot, and he missed a court date. So he was driving with a suspended license. So the the very camera that we all invested in, we I think we all spent uh, $1,000. And has been used to prevent crime? It's permanently installed, yeah. But has it prevented crime? Has anybody we don't, been caught? We don't think so. I don't think so. No, nobody has been caught. Nobody. Uh, we had uh, a Federal Express caper going on where people were Is stealing the boxes. Is looking at the camera? They're supposed to be. It's tied with the police department and shared with other law enforcement agencies like uh, Caleb said. So you might want to look into the Key Biscayne case because we probably we just invested in this stuff last year. You did it voluntarily. We yeah. all did it voluntarily. We paid for the camera. The city did not. And we have it on our bridge that goes to Mashta Island. This is like a subdivision of Key Biscayne? Yeah, I call village. it an enclave because we're not, I would say we're a subdivision. Unincorporated. No, no, no. It's part of the municipality. But right. We're just, there's a little, <clears throat> maybe, a, uh, I don't know, 50, uh, uh, 20 yard bridge separating us from the rest of Key Biscayne. It's uh, got a very small bridge. I, w I don't think it's more than, I don't know, 75 feet or so. And it's just a group of homes that has its own association. And we decided to invest in this so that we can 
have all the tags being read, and if there's a, a wanted person or someone in a stolen vehicle or one of our actual vehicles are stolen, uh, we could catch this person, and we don't know if it's been effective at all. But, uh, yeah, it's something that I, I wasn't crazy about the idea, and uh, I was in the minority, so I ended up having to pay to, to fund it, but I didn't like the police state idea at all. And we, you know, we were on a, a WhatsApp app, among residence owners, you know, going back and forth on our phones, and there was there was uh, a consensus to buy this, and I don't I think I don't like it one bit to you know leave the key uh, worrying about the, my tag being <laughs> being read every right. time. <clears throat> so you know sooner or later it's the tag. I mean, I don't believe it's the tag that commits the offense. I believe it's the driver. So that's my issue. Right. That, well, and, and you know I, I think what you're talking about is is part of the larger issue because. These cameras are all connected together. And, right. You know, that's really the, the scary part for us, too, is that, you know, as we've been involved in this case, you know, there's one vendor that generally installs these cameras and monitors them. And I believe so. I believe you're absolutely correct because there was a delay in installation, and he, the excuse they gave us, it was a he who did a presentation with us on the bridge itself, was that it wasn't tied to Coral Gables Police Department yet. <laughs> there was a delay of it being operational. So Coral right. Gables it, knows about you. Know, they, you. They're shared. Yeah, they were sharing the information exactly, wow. and it's ex expensive software downloads and requires someone to be looking at it all the time. So I don't know who in the police department here on the key is looking at our cameras. I suspect that anybody who's on shift is probably doing other things other than looking at that camera. But uh, there it is, and it, I think it was fifty thousand bucks it cost us, just on one bridge, <laughs> going in and going out. And, uh, it, you know, it's, I don't like it one bit. It, I think it stinks. So maybe when you win your case, so they're going to tell us that, well, you just ate $50,000. You got to turn off your cameras. Is that I, what you I, all, I, you're seeking? I to, certainly hope so. <laughs> well, thank you very much for the call. I'm, I'm glad it, uh, it has a, had a personal, it resonated with me big time. So I really uh, wish you luck. Thank you, Caleb. Thank you very much. Good you luck. Bet. With all your cases. Thank you. Yeah, that's that's interesting. That that is a very interesting. Uh, so group. what I should do is go in front of our camera and bump stock it and shoot. Yeah, get your bump stock and <laughs> shoot it. Well, you know, in in France, sixty percent of all red light cameras have been destroyed by the Yellow Jacket uh, rebellion. The people are just peed off about the government. What do you mean, Yellow Jacket? You know, There's Fra an audience out of here that wants to know this stuff. Well, in France, there's been rebellion and protests every oh, weekend. Oh, Yellow Jacket in Paris. Right. The, the Macron. It's, it's the all, Macron over, Fran it's all over France. And they have destroyed at least 60% of all the red light cameras. France apparently has red light cameras uh, looking everywhere. And uh, these, you know. Yeah, people are getting tired of their people police. Are, are, yeah, they're there. And the Big high brother. taxes. Big brother and high taxes. Absolutely. So that's what you're seeing. Well, uh, I think it sucks among us that uh, status culture can't be uh, fought against if the people who are fighting them are called radical and extreme. That's because right. Because it's the easiest way to exit out of a conversation is by calling me radical and extreme. Meanwhile, nope. I have to sit there and watch your ignorance develop into a sophisticated ignorance. Nope. And I think that the two uh, callers we had today, I think... Uh, Logan Churchwell was talking about the importance of 
voter integrity, and I, there's no question that that's something that we can all participate in. Even if we're not lawyers, we can participate in the poll-watching process. And I'd say even before poll-watching, the whole process of cleaning up the voter rolls is really important. So are you willing you to do a video person, presentation, YouTube video, of me filming you and you filming me using a bump stock? No, no, no. I have a shotgun, so I would never use a shot uh, a bump stock in a but shotgun. A shotgun? What makes you think you're so safe with a shotgun that, that you need a lot of space to crank? First of all, to load it, you need a space. How about if you're up against a wall? That's right. No, I agree. That could be. And, and it's know, a break you, action. Yeah. And no, not to mention, can you fire two or three rounds at two. once? Yeah, two at a time. So yep. here's double, bar, double yep. barrel? Double barrel action, as we call it. So in other words, if someone goes into your apartment, you killed your neighbor in the apartment next to you. Could be. It blows right through that drywall. That could be, yes, that could be. But Katrina will think you're, you're her a hero. A hero, yes. The John Wayne that she met in Texas yeah, back absolutely. in the day. Yep, yep, and you yep. were the Cuban John Wayne. What do you think about Desi Arnaz's celebration? You know, What's Google, his celebration? It was a celebration of his birth, uh, 115 years old. Where Google. was this? In Key Biscayne? No, man, Google recognized it on the Google search engine. Oh, okay, I didn't see that. Okay. Yeah, the Desi Arnaz, uh, he would have been, I think he was 115 years old. Pretty pretty cool, huh? For the Absolutely. first Cuban American to ever uh, star on television, and he looked a lot like my father. That's oh. why it was personal to me, anyway. Great. My father has plenty of pictures where the hairstyle is the same. My father's general face structure was the same. He was a son, he was the son of a, a apparently the mayor of Santiago. I didn't know that either. Arnes was a, a mayor. At Santiago de Cuba. Yeah, pretty cool. So anyway, we're approaching seven o'clock. We got uh, statues and stories coming we up. Have statues and stories coming up for a whole hour with Jefferson's presidency. Whoa, absolutely! And you know, Thomas Jefferson was a political opponent of Alexander Hamilton, but Jefferson's biggest achievement in the presidency was the Louisiana Purchase, and the reason he was able to so do it's that. So he was a, basically a Trump, a Trump president buying well, real estate. We bought real. <laughs> at a good price. But the reason he was able to do that was because the United States government had good credit and had a, a sound uh, fiscal system, and that was due to Alexander Hamilton. So are uh, you basically insinuating we should buy Venezuela or something? No, I, did, I was not saying we should buy Venezuela. I think we have plenty with what we have. How about buying Cuba? We offered $150 no, no, million no, once. No, 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 no. You've forgotten that I, uh, that I was speaking to Mr. Statues and Story, Adam, and I told him about the Abstain Manifesto, and you guys didn't pay attention to it, but it was a very legitimate, under the presidency of Franklin Pierce, I believe it was. Yeah, but I think it, that was before the Civil War. A lot of the southern states were trying to, to expand add, slavery. To add, yes. Yeah, to not only expand slavery, but accumulate population so that after they lose, they would be uh, the North would pay them for... Uh, I don't know, it's not retribution, but the reconciliation funds to rebuild the Reparations? Southern... That's the word. Say it again. Reparations. There's, to the Confederacy? Yes, based on population, and therefore owning Cuba would give them a lot more money. All right, well... Didn't happen. Don't worry about that. You can't go back and redo history. But, uh, yeah, I think it, it'll be interesting to see, because Jefferson, that was the big thing he did, and, uh, you know, all the way out to Oregon and, and Washington. So we're looking forward to... Adam giving us a call. And what time do you have? I have five minutes to seven. What do you have? No, three minutes, but that's okay. Yeah, three minutes to mm -hmm. seven. So in that case, we'll listen to We're an American Band with Grant That's Park. good.
How about you have to that? get more patriotic. Yeah, that's a good patriotic song. Okay, fair enough. We'll be back in three and a half minutes. You're listening to WSQF Blink Radio, the end of the Concrete Conservatives Hour with Victorious Vidal and McElroy. If you like our programming on WSQF 94.5 in Key Biscayne, you can also hear us very far away nationwide, WSQFradio.com. And if you like our audio files and our subject matter, subscribe to YouTube Mac on the Rock Rampage. Take care and stay free.